Welcome to That's No Longer My Ministry, a podcast that tells a different story about healing. A story of healing as discipline, as real, hard, and uncomfortable work. This is a place where we honor the journeys of marginalized folk actively purging years of programming and the consequence of never being centered. A place for acknowledging and moving through trauma. A place where radical self-liberation is sought and no is a complete sentence. You should listen if you're someone who wants to build the kind of life you don't need to escape from. I'm your host, Nadia, a black woman who has spent way too much time trying to fit into a number of spaces that weren't and still aren't meant for me. But that's no longer my ministry. okay um which is to say a lot because most days I don't feel okay for a number of reasons and so what happened to me today is I was editing a podcast that will come out after I get off of this call (laughs) and um I was almost done with it much earlier today and then I needed to fix an error that if I was a professional sound editor, probably could have taken not that long to fix, but I've been fixing it all day. So not doing a lot of other things that I need to be doing. Um, And I was just like, today, I mean, that's just gonna have to be what it is, Mm -hmm. right? Today's a day where I have to fix an error that I'm not familiar with. And if I want the podcast to go out today, I will have to do it, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so instead of getting um, just very emotionally worked up about it or getting frustrated about it, I just was just very clear-minded that these are just the order of events of things that have to happen. And I don't need to devote an exorbitant amount of emotional energy to beating myself up about it. It just kind of is what it is. And so I feel really good about that. And I went to the gym today too and taking care of my body and I'm drinking my little green juice. And so I actually feel really good. Things are not perfect by any means, but I'm building my relationship with myself physically and emotionally to take care of myself in new ways that I I haven't done before. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really great because I think I know that like resonates with me because I get stuck on something that hasn't gone the way that I planned it would go. And it just it's there's something about that feeling that can take over and just completely disrupt your entire day. Um, And it has for me multiple times. So I feel like that's something the fact that you're growing in trying to just take things as they come and knowing that what you're working on right now is the most important thing or is the only thing you need to be working on. I think that's a really brilliant perspective to try to embody when you're faced with that. So you mentioned your podcast. I've listened to it, Black Cancer. It's exciting. It's so so good. And I just think what I love about your podcast, at least when I first heard it, is that the title alone says it all, right? Black Cancer, that that's some that's such an untapped body of content and stories um so i'd love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners and just like what you'd want them to know about you who you are doesn't have to be all work stuff but just who you are yeah so um professionally i'm a speaker and writer full-time i work at the intersection of race culture and health and i'm really getting more comfortable with 
what it means to do that completely on my own. Um, so that feels really good and frightening and energizing. I also created a podcast, like you said, Black Cancer last year. I'm on the third season, the first episode that comes out today. And that um, really is a labor of love project where, I mean, you know this, doing a podcast without like a podcast company and infrastructure is a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of emotional work too, because everyone that I'm talking to is navigating some type of trauma, either a, a historical trauma, something that they're still, that's part of them now and has changed, you know, foundationally the way they see themselves in the world. And for a lot of people, there are traumas that they're going through literally right now, like in the middle of chemotherapy, in the middle of, you know, managing end of life decisions. And so to be able to offer those stories to the public, you know, in perpetuity and create some record and legacy that we were here, these were our experiences through our lens is so important to me. And, you know, as far as my identities, I'm Jamaican, I'm black, cishet woman. I live with a disability, I have a spinal cord injury. For all the spinal cord injury folks out there, C5, whoop, whoop. <laughs> represent. <laughs> yeah, represent for all the C5 spinal cord injuries. Um, an incomplete spinal cord injury, if, you know, for folks who know those technicalities. But the Black Cancer Podcast is actually one of the few spaces of my work that does not center the white gaze. It's just us, it's our stories and they're long episodes. And I want people to fully have the space to be themselves and not flatten their experience for some type of performance of trauma or performance of their blackness or whatever their identities are. And so that work is really powerful for me. And I think it's been influencing my other work as well, where I'm trying to carve out bodies of work that actually have nothing to do with the white gaze. Yeah, I love that. And I love that. That's what I'm trying to do with my podcast and trying to craft a new narrative of healing for marginalized folk. I think that I resonate with what you're saying in that it's just a space for us to talk about our own healing practices, our own, you know, healing journeys in a way that's not confined by the Western idea of it, whether it's the Western idea of yoga or of working <laughs> out, right? Like yeah. I, for a long time, thought I hated working out because of the way it was pushed on me by a lot of white people or a lot of instructors, a lot of white centered gyms. But now I'm like, it's actually my movement practice. And if I think about it like that and the different movements I like, and I, when I take core, like classes from people of color who are leading them it's a much different experience if i take a yoga class from a person of color who has like a social justice lens it's a much different experience so it turns out working out's nice i feel good in my head <laughs> absolutely like when the pandemic first hit the first virtual thing was and i was really excited for is that i was able to access more people of color and so i took a virtual yoga class from the brooklyn yoga club and all these people were on their videos and, you know, they're doing the best that they can in that context, you know, trying to uh, switch to virtual. Mm -hmm. And my dog is like walking all over the place. 
right? And the, the instructor was like so chill about it. She's like, every time I looked at the screen to pretend that I was checking out people's form, I just wanted to see what the puppy was doing, right? <laughs> I love it. And it was just nice to have that camaraderie and the music and just, you know, as we connect our movement to our healing, it just hits differently. You know, it hits different when mm-hmm. it's us. Um, it feels more authentic. And so even when I do, you know, the Peloton stuff, I always try to, I always choose the instructors of color because I cannot have Becky telling me I can do anything that I want if I put my mind to it. I'm like, girl, you don't know my life. <laughs> but <laughs> Becky does not know that there are some limitations, okay? And that <laughs> Becky is the problem. Yes, you are the problem. You that's so funny because I legitimately will only take classes from the black Peloton instructors. I don't even widen it to people of color most of the time, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> if I'm going to do well on this bike, I need to hear a Nigerian yell at me. So I'm going to yes. go ahead. <laughs> I respect her. I will grow from her. Tunde, get me in line. Yes, yes. That is so real. That is so real. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I would love to like move into the first segment, which is called So You've Been Told. And this is where we unpack mainstream stories about the major theme of the episode. So this episode has a lot to do with a really popular, amazing, incredible TED Talk that Miss Jodi Ann put out into the world. And it's called The Myth of Bringing Your Full Authentic Self to Work. This is something that I I think the world needed. I needed to hear it Um, because I think we are all, especially if you're in a corporate work environment or it doesn't really matter. A lot of workplaces will say, you know, bring your full authentic self, bring your authentic, be authentic, be, you know, we want to see you. And as someone who has heard that and it did not go over well when I was myself or have been myself or showed my true colors, whatever that might be, my black self, you know, it makes you start to question all of the different statements you hear from these places. So I brought in a number of corporate DNI statements that I would love Jodi Ann to react to <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with all the wonderful work she's doing. So let me pull up. And I just like to tell people that usually I just Google some of these things and see what pops up first, because that's what we're getting mainstream. So here we go. Um, <laughs> I'm a little nervous too. Um, okay, so here we go. First one, we celebrate diversity and are committed to creating an inclusive environment where employees can bring their full self to work, striving for a team that represents the diverse communities and guests we serve makes us better. You want my response? Mm-hmm. It's a little crock. However, <laughs> it's important that it's there, right? Because as the person of color or someone who holds an underrepresented identity in that environment, you have something in black and white that you can point to. It's like you you said that these were your commitments. You said that our differences and our diversity makes us better. So you have to make good on the promise. And so I think even though a lot of these statements are very well crafted with probably a team of people or one black person (laughs) wrote this, Um, on behalf of their company, you know, they're probably, there might not be legs behind it, but that statement needs to be there. But yeah, I mean, it's just like DEI mumbo jumbo. Yeah. And I think that's something that's so funny. I almost, I almost flipped this around and just decided to read 
all the statements first and then just have a conversation <laughs> because the more and more you know it's actually quite hard to find different diversity and inclusion yeah they're very it's, similar it's all boilerplate yeah in my opinion they are that that is exactly what it is they are all sourcing the same words in different order and putting it on the same places in their website the question is, where is that being articulated and how you make decisions as a company and organization? And so one thing I want to uh, stress here and put an asterisk on is most of my professional experiences working for other people has been in nonprofit organizations. And this behavior is still the same, if not worse, because when you work with people who are quote unquote good people who think they're doing quote unquote good work, they don't see the inconsistencies of the impact that they say that they're trying to make, the values that they have on their websites, and actually who they are and how they show up every single day in their work. You know, I did global health for almost five years. And these are people who travel all over the world, speak multiple languages, right, are in situations where they themselves, particularly white folks, are not in the majority in their work context. And they have been the most culturally incompetent people that I've ever met in my professional career, ever. Dang, that's a statement. <laughs> <laughs> like, ever. <laughs> I'm, be I'm being so serious about this. Um, and just a quick aside, like as a Black person working in global health, going to Black countries, mm. white folks on the Western side who are in this work, they code me as local mm -hmm. so I get to really see their behaviors because they assume that I don't speak English I don't understand what's going on and I get ignored a lot like I've sat at tables in very expensive hotels and no one would speak to me only the server would that's absurd. That's absurd, but not surprising. Like that's No, it's not surprising. So, you know, I see these statements all the time and then there's the lived experience of working there. Mm -hmm. I will say that early in my career when I worked at um, the Harlem Children's Zone in New York and my boss is Black, my colleagues were all Black and, you know, Latinx and folks of color mm -hmm. in large, by large, my boss was black, my boss's boss was black, like the whole team were all filled with folks of color. And I don't think I ever saw on a piece of paper on the website, diversity is important to us, is important to us and we want you to bring your authentic self. <laughs> <laughs> well, for at that point, you know, you don't really need optics when you actually are living the values. So <laughs> when you actually can be represented by the team, because I think one thing that I always do whenever I see, I mean, especially last uh, June after the uprisings following George Floyd's murder and all the corporate statements that came out so many and I just remember going to these websites and just clicking on the staff page you know diversity is important and you just see a wall of white faces and especially when you're talking about c-suite and leadership like the people who are making all of the decisions yeah let's let's compare the diversity and inclusion statement to these people and then you can really see is it actually resonating is it actually playing out in the work you do because i can assure you I, I can see that it's not oh yeah and the scammery is happening all over the place like i had this white woman uh pitch me to 
create video content to be a part of some library of anti-racist work that they could sell to corporations and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, all right, but as she's pitching this to me, I go to her website and every single person on her team is white. And so I'm asking her about that. How are you selling something to change behaviors that you yourself in your own company need to change? What was her response? You know, we need to work on it and all that kind of stuff. But the conversation got derailed because when she was pitching me, she's showing images of all these other people that she's worked with. And of course, there's a lot of people of color on the page. And I know some of them. And so I'm like, oh, you've worked with Stacy? And then she goes, oh, I have a meeting with her next week. And so then I'm like, oh, you work with Lisa? And I'm texting, um, these are all fake names, by the way. And I'm texting Lisa. And she's like, I met with them like six months ago and we haven't done any work together. And I'm like, wow. Oh, the wild. Scammery. That's, yeah. Well, that's like, I remember when I was still living in Seattle and there was talks of like the first black owned cannabis shop in Seattle. Everybody was excited about it. And then it was like two days later, all that information went away. And I was like, wait, what happened to the black owned shop? Like, I want to send people there. I want to go there if it's true. And it was like, actually, there was one person who was an owner and they were like, not even 10% ownership of this cannabis shop. And in fact, it is a white owned cannabis yeah. shop. Like it was, they use the one black person. It's like a marketing tactic now. Yes. Like, let's be black owned. Like, let's... yes, yes. That's stupid. I'm done with that. I really, I, this is another form of whiteness that, I mean, there's so many flavors and I just don't want to partake in anymore, but just the fact that they're like, oh, now it's going to be super profitable for us to be black owned. So let's say we are and still not give any opportunities to black people. Exactly. And so when I read or, you know, when I listen to these statements and see these statements online, I'm like, whatevs, like anybody could write that, right? <laughs> anybody could slap a black face somewhere. What are you actually doing? Right. And, what and most, Im most importantly, what are you giving up to make this true? This table that we want everyone to have a seat at is not infinite, right? There is finite space. Mm. So some of y'all have to leave that table to actually start shifting how we do business, the decisions that we make and the goals that we're setting. Yeah, I don't think they're ready for that. I think no. that they would actually just like some black people to contribute to the statement. <laughs> and, yes. and then they go back to their quiet roles wherever they are at the company and they don't engage them ever again. Exactly. And so the, for me, it's like, I know the game. So I'm not emotionally investing in the performance or people's mm -hmm. lives because I know the truth and I'm not going to risk my health. Mm -hmm because all of these have physiological, psychological, emotional impacts. I'm not gonna risk my health for someone's insistence on caucasity. Yes, caucasity. We love when that's brought into the conversation. <laughs> I'd like to read a little bit more caucasity for you. Okay, let's hit I it. I don't know if we'll need to answer them because I feel like we've covered a lot, but I just want to, I just like to share what's out there because it's a little bit, this one made okay. me laugh a little. Okay, before we get into that, I want people to know that I am flipping my waist length knotless box braids in full 
black girl magic right now at this nonsense. Let's yes. continue. Yes, flip those. <laughs> flip it. What? I love it. That? That's like, that's what the video comes live. People will see it. Um. Okay, great. <laughs> just maybe I'll just cut that segment. That part is important for people. Okay, great. Okay, so DNI is more than a box to check or a target to hit. The numbers matter, but they're only a starting point. A commitment to diversity and inclusion has to run much deeper. That's why we've set an audacious goal, audacious, to make this company the most diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplace on the planet. And we're not just setting high expectations for our own good, we're aiming sky high because we know from experience that reducing and eliminating inequity is hard to do if all you do is shoot for incremental change. Okay. That's this one's not as bad. Really? It's not I'm not saying that it's great, but it's not as bad, right? Because they're acknowledging all the pitfalls to this work, that it's a checkbox, that we can do things incrementally, um, that you know, like all these ways that people are definitely going to fall in those pits when it comes to this. And so they're saying that we already know what's on the roadmap ahead and our intentions, quote unquote, is to not go into those pits. And so that I will give it two points for. <laughs> I love it. A solid two point. That's nice. But go on, please. <laughs> but the, the challenge with that is setting audacious goals you know what that reminds me of what you know when people say like i don't care if you're black white polka dot purple green whatever <laughs> whatever right like it's <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're black white or you're an alien right <laughs> it's so extra so it puts it in this fantasy world mm -hmm. and so it can feel really good because you're saying like to the furthest edges of what's possible beyond what's possible, I'm okay with that. Right. So in this statement where they're talking about setting audacious goals to be the most diverse, blah, 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 that is so out there, almost beyond what is possible, unless you are like seriously changing things today. Right, right. You know, and I'm from the Southeast side of Queens, New York, According to Wikipedia, the most racially diverse place on the planet per square feet, right? And so I know what it's like to be around quote unquote diversity, mm -hmm. where you can just put a random group of five people walking across the street. They come from different countries. They're speaking different languages. They're eating different foods, right? That type of diversity, a lot of these organizations are not built for. They have a lot of built-in excuses why they can't get there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like a feel-good way of already knowing the ways that you're going to fail. Yeah. Honestly, I, the reason I was shocked that you were like, okay, there that you gave the two points um, was because it just, even you know, like the most equitable place on the planet. I'm like, girl, what? Like, no, that's a, whatever. I feel like, because I was just like, are you going to fire everybody and start over? Like, what? Exactly. Exactly. And so it's a feel good thing. Like I said, like, it's a feel good thing that is not grounded in reality. Yeah. 
But the only credit I give to it is just its acknowledgement of all the places that it will probably definitely fail. At least you know that. Because some people go into this stuff saying like, this is easy, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Lots of people do that. And then they hire the first white woman who applies for the job. But that's neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. Listen, you better tell people the truth. I like this is what I'm here to do. This is this is why I've gotten a lot of trouble at different different jobs. But here's the last one, which I don't know if I have any feelings about. Like I said, a lot of these statements recycle the same words and then they put their own twist on it that confuses me a bit. So this one says, our mission is to make DNI our way of doing business. We will advance our culture of belonging in which open hearts and minds combine to unleash the potential of a brilliant mix of people. And brilliant was in a different color. Like it was like brilliant. Like they wanted, oh. you know, so I just want to add that because people need to, <laughs> people need to know what I was looking at when I was like, yup, got to run this by Joni Ann. Um, so <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I just want to barf. Um, <laughs> I don't like this. I think a white woman wrote this. Um, because there were no black people involved. No, no, no black person was voluntold to support the DEI committee to write this statement. This was fully a Karen operation. <laughs> um, the feelings, the belonging, it's so fuzzy. It's so like, you know, weighted blanket. Mm, <laughs> yes. And we love a weighted blanket. Right. It's, but it's not grounded in anything like I'm gonna be real with you do I want my white colleagues to be nice to me that's not actually high on my priority list right I want to get promoted when I should get promoted I want to get paid what I need to get paid if not more to make up for the fact that y'all have been underpaying me for my whole entire career you know, I want to be able to say something in the meeting without somebody repeating that and then having the idea attributed to them and people thinking that's okay. I want to not be assigned office housework. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get the social committee together. I do not want to take notes in the meeting. Those are the things that are actually more important to me than what actually ends up happening when people think that belonging at work is about friendship is when you have a random white person come up to you and tell you about the black movie that they saw this weekend, which right. I did not see. <laughs> which I don't, which, you know, honestly, my favorite line from your TED talk was like, we take on hobbies we don't actually like. And I was like, oh my God, if I get invited to another fucking dive bar, I am- No, gonna I don't want to do trivia with you. We don't have the same set of cultural knowledge. <laughs> no. I don't know anything about the Beatles and I don't want to feel bad about that <laughs> seriously that will come up no matter where you go yes, and also my success in my work environment shouldn't be based on how many social activities that I do with y'all that I don't want to do because right. as soon as there's a social act activity people feel like we're in a friendship space they don't have to kind of stay as buttoned up the alcohol cult starts rolling in and the microaggressions start rolling out and I don't want to have to be mad about something with you for the rest of the time that we're working in this place together and so for my sake and for yours and for my career I'm not showing up to this happy hour amen amen I oh god I just want to put that on a loop and send it to my white colleagues 
our former wife. I am not going. And you know, the thing that, you know, people don't realize is that you do get penalized for not showing up to the happy hours. And I yes. heard this from a friend of mine just recently, like they just had their review conversation and the manager was like, you know, this isn't really related to your performance, but I just wanted to offer this feedback right now. I was like, mm, so it's not related and yet somehow it's here. Ding, ding, that's how you should know. We should not enter the conversation. Like do not pass go, do not collect $200. The rest <laughs> of this conversation should not go down. And it did, it did. She was upset. She was embarrassed because she didn't have the best turnout for her happy hour. And my friend who didn't want to go cannot drink alcohol, cannot, like had brain surgery, cannot drink it, was like, this is not an event for me. So I'm not going to go. Like you invited me, but obviously you didn't think about me. I'm not going to go. Yes. And that ended up affecting her rating, her you know, ability to go for a promotion, ability to get higher pay, which she already can't do because she's a brown person in a white institution. Yeah. Yeah. I was working at a, I don't know if I had more latitude because it's a nonprofit space, but when I first started working in Seattle and they were doing happy hours and all that kind of stuff, I told my supervisor and my coworkers, I was like, let me tell you something. I'm not showing up to these happy hours. I'm going to tell you this right now. And if I do, I'm going to come late I will order nothing and I will leave early. And I don't want this to be counted against uh, my approachability or my performance reviews, whatever. So I'm just gonna lay it out right now. You're not gonna see me across the street at the bar. <laughs> and did that go over well? Of course, they're like, yeah, Jodi Ann doesn't show up. <laughs> so when I did, they're like, oh my God, Jodi Ann is- <laughs> A blessing, a blessing just entered. That's, I want to, you gotta, gotta start approaching things like that. Let me just set the precedent. I did do that in my current role. I was like, just so you know, I will be laboring white people as part of my role here. Yeah. So like, I don't know what your follow-up questions are. Somebody write that down. Please take it in the notes. Somebody took notes and sent out the recap notes and bolded. Nadia will not be laboring for white people. And I was like, is this a win? It's in notes that were captured. Yes, yes. And you can refer back to it. It's in black and white. You said you were committed to DEI. Right. Nadia said that she was not laboring for white folks. <laughs> You know what? And I think I made some friends or maybe I lost the ones I didn't need. But regardless, it's time to get into the meat of the programming um, and just to refer back to you. You did say like there are some mental and physical like repercussions of being in these spaces. And so I know that last I think it was last year you got let go from a job. I and did. It, thank God. I was so happy. I was the most joyous unemployed person on the face of the planet. <laughs> Want to hear about <laughs> <laughs> but I asked this question because in letting in being let go and in being unemployed, you were letting go of a lot of other shit. Um, and some of them may not have been ever or are no longer your ministry. So what is no longer your ministry? What is no longer my ministry? I had one answer, but I switched at the last minute. Love Ready? Emotional martyrdom is no longer my ministry. Yes, tell us about that. So I feel like especially women of color, black women specifically, we're supposed to hold so much for so many people. And that's the expectation. 
that no matter what it does to me in my emotional space, in my energies, in my healing process, you know, whatever my goals are, I'm supposed to hold your emotions, your goals, your needs, and I'm not going to sacrifice myself, right? Like I have been to the absolute ends of my emotional state Mm. where waking up every single day was the hardest thing for me. And I struggled with just existing minute to minute to minute for months and months and months and months. I have reached the apps. I have been completely depleted. And so as I have been trying to fill my own stores mm-hmm. and trying to give myself space to pour into myself, you know, I'm trying to, I'm filling up a little bit and people are like, oh, Jodi Ann got a little more energy these days or whatever. I feel like people want to take from me. Yeah. And whatever people might be perceiving as my level of success or things that I have, whatever, I'm going to put it on the record right now that my stores are not filled Hmm. and I'm filling my own stores first. And so if that means that I'm in a period of my life where Jodi Ann is cold, Jodi Ann's an asshole, Jodi Ann isolates, Jodi Ann does things on her own, that'll just have to be what other people's story is about this period of my life. But what this period of my life is, is learning how to see myself, learning how to fight for myself and understanding almost the limitlessness of what could be possible for me when I am taken care of. Mm. And I'm curious because you're you're talking about this stage of your life. So I'm curious about the one right before this um, where, you know, you weren't necessarily taking care of yourself first. What did that look like? And what myth or belief did you have in mind that contributed to not taking care of yourself first? It's very easy to get socialized under the expectation of being a strong Black woman. Mm -hmm. Um, We see this culturally. We see this in our own families. We see this in our ancestry and we see this in our own lives all the times that in our life we have been rewarded for being strong, independent, what have you. Mm-hmm. That has been my mode. It was had been a big part of my identity to be this strong person. And I got a cancer diagnosis and realized all the ways that being strong put my life at risk Mm. all the times that I was in pain and I ignored it (laughs) all the times that I really wasn't up to something and I pushed through anyway all the times that I you know you know there are oftentimes where I went to doctors and didn't have good experiences and then I I fell off of uh, the follow-up system I just stopped going so I'm like whatever I got this I can push through and so in that time my symptoms and conditions of the tumor that was in my spinal cord were, was advancing and I was ignoring it. And so once I went through that surgery, what was tough for me is I insisted 
against medical advice that I was still gonna go snowboarding in Europe. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Jody <laughs> You're like, this is what I'm gonna do. Legit. The surgeon was like, we can't make you better. And I'm like, you're telling me that this tumor is gonna paralyze me completely in a year. And when y'all take it out, it could also completely paralyze me. So I'm going to Europe. <laughs> That's logical. T plus two equals four. Yes. So I came, I went there. I mean, we were at the tops of mountains, right? And I'm just doing things that I never thought that I would be able to have access to, right? Not even just physically do and learning this very expensive white sport, um, but to have access to do it in other countries and all that kind of stuff. And so I was really enjoying that time. And I was also devastated because I didn't know if I was going to die when I got back. Mm. And so going from like literally to the top of mountains to being stuck in a bed in a hospital for a month, not being able to walk was very emotionally traumatizing for me and still something that, um, that I'm trying to deal with. And so I think that period of time where I was on disability leave and you know, I wasn't working and I was trying to walk again and just dealing with what does it mean to be disabled and live in this body and all of that kind of stuff. I like resented the drive and everyone's insistence that I need to push through and overcome and you got this and you're strong and all of those things that you say to people who are recovering from something devastating. I resented it because I was just tired of overcoming. And that's something that I kept telling myself over and over again. Like, I'm so tired of overcoming. I literally just want to lay in bed all, all day, every single day. I don't want to do anything. I don't actually want to get better, right? I'm, I started giving up on myself, even as people around me were just rallying to support me. And so that was really um, a shift for me in understanding like what community support and what community love actually looks like yeah because there are a lot of phases in my journey where I didn't have to be strong yeah. it was actually okay that someone helped me get dressed it was okay that I wasn't up to things and people would help me like and so that was really challenging and and different to need help and also accept that help and so when I returned to the workforce, you know, I switched jobs and I was trying to do something that was, um, I had to get out of my life. So I quit global health. Also, I couldn't travel really anymore like that. And I wanted to find work that would completely consume my life. Mm. I wanted to work 80 plus hours a week. I wanted the stress of white nonsense so I could escape from kind of the realities of my life. Hmm. Um, but slowly, and we could talk a little bit more, you know, specifically in this phase of my life, I'm not trying to escape in other people's work. You yeah. know, I'm yeah. trying to be more present in what I can learn from my own trauma and how I can leverage that to create a life that, you know, when I end up on a hospital bed again, I can look back and say like, damn girl, you ate this shit up. Like you just, 
<laughs> you don't have to go ahead in that moment and take a trip to Europe. You you yeah. are doing it. Yeah, I'm like I've done it all. Like, let's go. <laughs> that's awesome. That's like that's an incredible story. But I one thing that really resonated with me was just all of these things people were trying to tell you to rally you that weren't resonating. And I think that happens a lot. I think it happens a lot. And I think that's the reason I wanted to start this podcast is that like wherever you are in whatever healing journey, there are going to be things pushed on you that just don't work for you. Um, and it's really about finding your own path and the, the things that really work for you and, and not being, not feeling bad about it. So like the fact that you were like, I just want to lay around all day. That's what you needed to hear someone say, you know, you can just lay around all day. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, what do you need? I will bring it to you. Right. Right. It's just, just asking the question. Cause it doesn't, you know, for, for other things, people will be like, well, you know, it could be, it could be way worse. It could be, hate that. It, you know, you don't know what, you know, this could have actually been the best thing to happen to you. You hear that too. And it's like, that doesn't feel like that for me, actually. <laughs> this is like, mm, might be paralyzed, might die. Like this doesn't feel like there could have been other things or this is a blessing in disguise or whatever. Um, so it's just, it's really interesting to hear how you were listening to those messages, but then more importantly, listening to yourself. Moving a little bit into the work that you're doing right now, and not the work you're doing professionally or any of that, but the work you're doing right now to reject uh, emotional martyrdom. Um, what does that work look like? Because that's, for me, it's the work for me, it's the most important part of your healing is what you're doing and what you're working on actively to get there. I'm really trying to design a nice like two to three hour morning routine. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> two to three hours. Like you were like, I need length. Yeah, I do. I do. Once my eyes open, you know, I have the responsibilities to my body and I have the responsibilities to my dog. So all the dog stuff aside, the first thing I need to do in the morning is take my medication. And I want to elevate that because there are a lot of people who suffer from disabilities or suffer from chronic pain and medication is a vital part of how they get to function and be in their lives every day. And they don't want people to feel ashamed of that. Like, I hate when people say like, I don't take medication. It's just like, fuck you. I have to, if I want to function with any level of, um, okayness, right? Like, mm -hmm. so I want to take my medication. I want to lay in bed and just stretch and wiggle my toes and make sure everything is still there and making sure that my body is where I think it is, which is part of my um, sensory disability. And I want to journal. I do yoga. I try to do a lot of reflective things in the morning, light a candle. I've been experimenting with sage. I don't know what it's supposed to do, but I like the look of it, you know? <laughs> what you like the look of like the sage that you burn or? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I think it's cool. It gives a good vibe, right? It smells good. It smells, it smells good. good and it's for me, I, it's cleansing. Like even for me, I'm like, let me just light it. And then I feel like the space is more approachable for me. Yes, yes. And so I try to do like, I'm, and I'm very serious about like two to three hours. I want to spend the top of my day only doing things that I want to do. And so I use Calendly to organize my calendar. And the way I set the functions is like, I'm unavailable for business meetings before 1 p.m. Mm. 
if I ever do something before one, it's like, maybe I felt like, all right, I have to make an allowance for something or it's someone that I'm like super excited to talk to. Like I would have this podcast with you at 9am or something, you know, like something <laughs> that gives me energy, but I want to create a life where when I open my eyes, I only am invested in the things that I need. Mm. And I think that is part of my practice around this you know, rejecting emotional martyrdom is not apologizing for the ways that I have to take care of myself, the ways that I have to survive and my goals to create a life that gives me energy. Mm. If the first thing I do in the morning depletes my energy, then what was the point of me waking up? <laughs> right, right. And I think, and I like thinking back to your previous life where you were entering the workforce, trying to consume like 80 hour work weeks, I'm guessing the first thing you did in the morning was not for you. No, and I wasn't sleeping. So part of my kind of trauma from everything is I developed like insomniatic behaviors. And so I would lay in bed until three, four, maybe sometimes five o'clock in the morning, digging into my body, looking for tumors and Googling cancer symptoms. And I would do this by myself, every single night and this started when I was in the hospital because like you don't sleep in a hospital mm -hmm. so what I replaced that with is emails and mm -hmm. so I started getting known in the job that I changed to after my surgery is Jodi Anson's really late emails mm -hmm. um and I would joke I'm like that's just my trauma <laughs> But really though, like really. And I would tell people and be honest, I'm like, oh, this is what I do instead of Googling cancer symptoms, I will work. And so I wasn't even waking up fresh. You know, I would wake up and go straight to the emails. Yeah. That's not a, but, but that's a life a lot of people live. And I, it's not a good one. <laughs> like, no. like, I don't want to, I mean, I'm not sure to pass judgment on it, but like to get up and or even to just be up all night answering emails reading emails just trying to be consumed by this other digital work life it's not serving you in any way no and i knew that i just was trying to save myself i think but i was just i wasn't changing the behavior that was hurting me i was just replacing it with something that gets externally validated Mm -hmm. So when I tell people that I'm up until four o'clock, you know, traumatized from cancer, that doesn't sound nice and people don't know what to do with that. And you can completely damage your social network if that's the person that you want to be publicly. If you become someone who works really late, mm -hmm. then, you know, that's socially acceptable and valued and you can get a lot of points for that. And that, and that's not really showing up as your authentic self. No, it's not. It's just hurting you. Yeah. And I was hurting myself um, intentionally. Yeah. I'm curious about now moving more into the workspace, how you are also still working toward releasing emotional martyrdom, but like in the work that you do now. So having a fresh start in a different kind of work environment. Yeah. So what that looks like for me is I, okay, what that looks like for me, and I'm just like giving out my business strategy here. <laughs> I mean, don't share the goods, just. 
I don't know if it's the goods, but like, I don't do any outbound pitches for my work mm. at all. So that means that I have to just work publicly mm-hmm. on my own, on my own terms, on things that I care about and things that are important to me. Then people see that public stuff and then they're basically pitching me like, hey, do you want to come do this thing for us? So that changes the power dynamic and every single business meeting that I have. The business meeting does not start with, Jody Ann, can you tell me about yourself? Mm. Because you looked at my website. You actually have more information about me than I have about you. Every single business meeting that I have starts with these companies telling me about them and like why I should come support them with a talk or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that feels so healing and fresh because I think especially as as uh, women of color and black women in the workplace you're always trying to fight for space to be seen but it's like y'all already saw me yeah you know so you you convinced me why I should come and spend you know an hour with you and I try to at least in my mind I'm always a no and I'm trying to find ways that this person gets me to a yes mm-hmm so that releases that um, kind of emotional space for me and feeling like I need something from these people because yeah. I've created the type of work life where I get to make decisions about what I want to do and um, those can draw opportunities to me, which means that the folks who are coming to me already know what I'm about. They know what I care about. They know the audiences that I like to speak to. And so there's generally more of an alignment there. And so as, even though I talk about microaggressions a lot, I'm actually not experiencing a lot of them anymore, which is like- I'm so jealous, girl. Like <laughs> like a world where you're not experiencing as many microaggressions, like, especially when you're working. Cause like, that's the thing is that yes. my life gets consumed. Like my work life gets consumed by the microaggressions. Cause then you experience it. You're like, what the fuck? Then you go yeah. talk to your girlfriends. Like, can you- <laughs> Like, do yeah. you believe that this thing happened to me? And it's like, that is what your day becomes because you're experiencing it so frequently. Yes, very rarely. I mean, I talk to people almost every day. Like I've, I've taken on many, many, many clients and talked to many people across the country, across the world since I started working for myself. And the amount of microaggressions that I face, I could probably count on one hand. Wow. And when it happens, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do this. We don't work together. Right. I decided that. Right. I don't have to be here. Like, <laughs> yes, you like, reached out to me. <laughs> you know, I have a friend who always says like, you know, I don't know what a, a free black woman looks like. You know, you don't know what that looks like. And I feel so free because I literally get to make all the decisions about who I get to work with. And so I really am not experiencing a lot of microaggressions. Like I talk about microaggressions and real talk, I feel very distant from that reality. <laughs> but when well, you've experienced it though, I mean, that's oh, something- forever. That's something like, I, I think, and I kind of want to talk about your TED talk a little because I wonder what kind of impact just speaking that story into existence has had on your healing journey. And oh, releasing my God. that life. That- and I don't know if people notice this outwardly. I'm curious for you if you noticed this, but that talk went through eight different drafts. There was like one very significant shift 
and just continuing to refine it over maybe six or seven months. And the thing that was most important to me that was very hard to figure out in the beginning is how to write something publicly, but I'm actually only talking to people of color. Mm. And so thinking about when I say you, who am I talking to? When I say we or us, who gets included in that? Mm-hmm. And every single word was painstakingly intentional to ensure that if you're a person of color, if you feel marginalized in any way, for 75% of the talk, you are the center of it. Yeah. And I, well, I felt like I was at the center of it the whole time. Yeah. And, and your use of pronouns, like, because one thing I noticed is like, they said, they say, they, and I'm like, I know who they is. Like, yes. I've experienced that. <laughs> yes. And even with my, um, with folks who are trying to make edits, like there's a line where I list manager, supervisors, da, da, da. I was coaxed into putting that in because what I was going back and forth with the TED people, TEDx Seattle people were... The people who I'm talking to know who they is. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot in that talk that doesn't get defined or doesn't get defined fully because I was very intentional about what do I think our assumed knowledge is. Mm-hmm. And so even as I'm, that was my like compromise, I'm like, I'm just going to list positions, mm-hmm. right? Just to give it some color. But the people who I'm talking to know who I'm talking about. Yeah. And so the process of doing that and learning how to write for us, because there's so many times, like the greater majority of the diversity, equity, inclusion work or like racial equity talks or whatever that are out there still centers white people. Yes. And so as we talk about racial marginalization, we marginalize people of color in that talk. And so that was my biggest healing practice. And I think probably the thing that shifted what this past year and a half has looked like working for myself is that I get to define the audience. I get to speak to who I want to speak to. And I can actually work with the assumed knowledge of the people who are like me. Mm-hmm. And so I want to create work that's for us. I don't want to create one-on-one work because that's the cycle that they get us stuck in. We don't have to be at one-on-one. We are at saturation in one-on-one level ideas. I feel very confident that there are no new ideas when it comes to like DEI one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Probably like 201. <laughs> so how can we go even further? How can we go deeper? Um and I'm just seeing like at a professor who'd always talk about like, that's very low level thinking. And there's a lot of low level thinking when it comes to DEI. And I don't even want to be a part of that because the way that we're operating, the things that are important to us as folks of color, um, it's just not even on the scale. Right. There's very rarely a DEI event or discussion at work that we hadn't talked about several, several decades ago. Like. Yeah. Yes. Where I'm like, why am I not learning anything? Isn't this supposed to be for me? And I'm not learning a single thing. Like y'all just got to white fragility. Yeah. And that was like, mm, that's old. You know what I'm saying? And so for me, it's like, that has been the biggest healing practice. Once I cracked the code on that for TEDx, 
Like it has been so easy to craft things. Even in the imposter syndrome article, mm. the smallest detail when we're going, um, Rachik and I were writing that together and going with the editor is every time we talk about women, the experiences of women of color are parenthetical mentions. Our whole life experiences get put between two punctuations. This is bad for women, comma, especially women of color, period. This is, you know, bad for women, parentheses, even worse for women of color, close parentheses, period. That is us. That's all we get. That's all we get. And like, fuck that. And so when we were writing this article, it's like, we are going to center women of color. So the same way that I'm supposed to read something about white women and extract, you know, something from me and try to do my own work and applying it from life. No, you do that. I'm centering myself, right? Mm -hmm. I'm centering women of color. You pull out what you need to pull out for your own life experience. That's, That's where I'm at. I love that. That's where I need to be. <laughs> I like I, that's how I am outside of work, but that's amazing. I I'm, this is more of a it's not shady. I'm just trying to this is something I'm actually curious about. Like when that TED Talk came out, did you have like former employers or people you worked with reach out to be like, girl, like <laughs> we good? Because I feel like and I say this because I've posted like pieces online where I'm just like and I keep it general and never say employee names or employers. And I'm just like, this is what white people do. This is what white people do in the workplace this is what they have done to me. And so and like seven people will be like, but it wasn't me, right? Because I worked with you and it wasn't like, girl, you know, it was you. That's why you're reaching out. Like, <laughs> yeah, I will say it's probably the New Yorker in me that anyone who has done any of these things, they know. There's no question mark. You know where you stand. <laughs> and so I've I've called people out publicly for microaggressions to whatever consequence would come to me. You know, when I talk about microaggressions and how to navigate them as folks of color, I always advise the first two things when I think about are what is your goal and what are you willing to risk? Mm. And so what makes me dangerous in these environments is that I will risk it all. I, I would get fired today. Like that is what's on the line. And I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. I want to know, ain't no trust fund out here, right? And so right. I don't have social, like I don't have the safety nuts to have that, um, what Ali Wong calls fuck you money. I don't have that. But especially after everything that I've been through, my emotional safety and health, my mental health is paramount. And I post, I posted something on Instagram, you know, when it comes to my mental health, I do not negotiate with terrorists. Amen. And so that was the line that I set for myself. So no one hit me up. What is funny is that- <laughs> They were too scared at that point. Because <laughs> girl, you know. Also, um, for people who have worked with me in the past, um, there are a bunch of Easter eggs in the TED Talk. And so what actually happened is that people that I used to work with hit me up and they're like, I don't believe you did that. Like, cause they know yes. what the deal is. <laughs> that's good. That's, I love that. That is so such that a, that's really cathartic. <laughs> yes, that, I mean, there are a couple of times where I give a little smirk in the talk and I know what I'm thinking about. And, you know, sometimes when I've navigated microaggressions in the workplace, especially as I knew that I wanted to go out on my own at one point, 
Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I'm just going to put on a talk. I'm just going to put in a talk. Like, just give me these stories because I'm going to make money off of this. Like, I'm going to build work off of this. Um, you know, thank you for this experience that I get to speak authentically to when I'm trying to build my empire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I have another friend who's like, it's okay. All these stories are going into the like TV series that I'm writing. So, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, y'all, you are going to put us through this. We're going to put you in some work that's going to make us money. And there's so much work that's happening right now. Um, I think the book, The Other Black Girl is, you know, an indictment on all the racism in the publishing industry. And I just love that people exponentially are finally getting the opportunities that they're due to tell their stories from their perspectives. So I'm excited to see more of that, um, less so on the like black trauma stuff and more so on what our stories are from our perspectives. Yeah. Do you have any rituals that you have for yourself as part of your healing practice? I do. Um, I think a ritual that I have, if I want to be subversive to this question, is to acknowledge some of the rituals that I'm trying to unlearn. Mm-hmm. And so I have immediate dispositions to feel like nobody's helping me. I immediately jump to um, feeling like people are trying to like get at me for something. Um, I immediately like beat myself up for stuff all the time and so when I I'm trying to bring more attention awareness to those practices and start unlearning and undoing that and so yeah I think that's besides the body work and like you know my morning routine I think trying to take out some of those negative reactions that I have and some defaults that have been socialized that's probably like my big healing ritual right now yeah and what does that look like trying to undo because i don't know for me i I really work on trying not to be so hard on myself i'm very self-critical over things that are they're not things that anybody should criticize themselves over Mm -hmm. and when it happens for me it's like an automatic response and so for i'm like okay what is the process for me sometimes i have to just sit with it and be like where does this come from and why are you upset with yourself and what is the consequence of you having done this thing almost all the time it's like there is no consequence (laughs) you exactly so that's how i start learning but it's so funny like yeah i break down like okay what are the consequences and you're like there are no consequences or whatever the worst case scenario is either isn't that bad or something that I've already been through. So I'm just like, whatever. I try to go for walks and try to get energy out. I say two things a lot as we talk about like self-talk reminders. Um, I'll say, you know, this is what learning feels like or everything doesn't have to be the best, right? And it is what it is. Like I gave a talk the other day and I did not feel good about it. And it was really upsetting me. And I'm like, you know what? Do you know how many talks I've been to that have been trash? Like, (laughs) it's what it is, girl. Like, move on. Of all the things that I have to worry about, the thing that I'm worrying about is actually not important. So it's, I just try to put it in perspective. Um, Another thing that I do is I've been reading a lot of N.K. Jeminson lately and reading Black sci-fi writers and Black uh, fantasy writers 
And what I love about that work and that world building is understanding that you can create different norms. And so I was reading the Broken Earth trilogy and they're talking about these, you know, black features of people and how that is ideal. Like you see somebody who looks like us and you're like, yeah, look at you looking all healthy and like thriving, you know? (laughs) And they talk about like white skin being like a little scary. And, and I just, I love the fact that there are spaces where people can create, where they set new rules. Mm -hmm. Um, Our values around colors and this and that, they're all made up in our actual worlds. So I just try to be in a space where the rules that I'm in right now weren't set up for me. They're not set up to make me feel good about myself. And so when I live my little life, you know, however many years I have left, I'm going to set new rules that Mm -hmm. work for me. I love that. I love that. the, The white, I mean, it makes sense to me that the white people were the scary ones. Um, I'm like relatable to be honest. Yes. So, so like why I don't know why this is not the rule in real life, but here we are. Um, <laughs> but I love that and I, I want to move into our the closing segment, which is really um it's about escape tendencies. So when you're saying like, I'm not sorry, I'm gonna do this instead, or I'm I'm gonna take a break from this work, like especially the work of trying to heal yourself is is can be very depleting it can be energizing at times but it can also be very depleting and so when you need to take a break and step away um it's interesting that earlier you were saying your version of escaping especially your cancer diagnosis was pouring yourself into work and that was the escape you were living in and i'm curious like what kind of escapes do you have for yourself now or do you need them yeah so i will say when things got really, really emotionally um, depleting after George Floyd was murdered, um, after the situation with Christian Cooper in Central Park, which impacted me on a very deep level, actually, because that's such a similar experience that what I've faced. Um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, when all of that was going down, I shut down. So the way I escaped, I just watched Hoarders all the time. I think I watched 10 seasons of Hoarders in two or three weeks and would rewatch episodes and just like fill my brain with very predictable formulaic programming that were about other people's problems that I couldn't relate to in any way. And so I've seen that type of behavior pop up in moments of um, really critical stress where I just like have to be in a different world and I cannot get out of it. Mm. Um, And I'll do that with like, like I watched the whole series of Monk for, you know, a couple of weeks and just like really binge and escape. What I've been finding lately outside of like heightened racial terrorism is I found this little place that I like to go to where there's no internet or cell phone connection. And I'll go there for several days. And Mm -hmm. so the last stretch that I had was in May and I went for seven days. So I just want you to imagine like seven days by myself with a dog because I'm like very single. (laughs) (laughs) Very single. 
and my Instagram is public. So if and, y'all wanna and Jody can pop in. Like <laughs> if any if you know, I don't I don't understand how you're very single. Um I it's would bad. if you up in a second. <laughs> I'm not single, so I can't. I can't right now. But maybe uh, okay. if the opportunity presents itself, I will try to woo you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let me know. I'm always waiting in the wings. So in any case, it's very, very, very isolating. No internet. No cell phone. Just myself and my thoughts. And I spent that week reading. I read five books. Yes. You know, I took a lot of walks. I brought like a lot of exercise equipment. I made fires and I just spent time just kind of emptying my brain. And that felt really good. I will say that I brought my computer. I brought a bunch of documents on Google Docs and I set them to offline. <laughs> I downloaded a bunch of articles from the internet that I wanted to read so I can write this article that I owe my editor. And I could not bring myself to do any of it. Oh, wow. So you brought it, but you were just like, no, nope. I didn't even open a single document. That's, uh, that's good. I'm glad that you did it. Um, and I wanted to and I was just like, I honestly can't. And so I do think I was trying to escape. I wanted to dream. I was thinking about new projects. I was, you know, drawing out all this stuff in my little tablet and taking naps, looking yeah. at cows, like, it was just nice to not, like anyone who wanted to reach me could not reach me. Yeah. Every single email will not go answered for seven days and no one died to my knowledge. There were no crises. Um, my, I'm not in financial ruin because of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when I escape, I really have to like, I go very extreme like I shut it all down mm -hmm. and how do you feel when you come back from that the re-entry is tough yeah um I don't I find myself sometimes craving for information and having to remind myself like girl you don't need any of it mm -hmm. um I get frustrated coming back to my apartment because I just have so much stuff and I'm just like, you didn't have any of it for a long time, you know, and I've traveled internationally for extended period of times and lived out of a suitcase for three months. Mm -hmm. And so when I re-enter, I always look at my life differently and like I start purging things. I purge people online. I purge physical items in my apartment. I try to edit my normal life as much as I can. So the re-entry just starts actually more work. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I, well, before we close, I want to, you, you've done so much, I think, in the work that you do and just your existence and your presence for Black women, for women of color. Um, there's, I just remember like when we met, you invited me to do a talk at the Riveter. And I remember I, I spoke on the myth of professionalism. And afterward, we were, we were connecting. You're like, you and I are so similar. And I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. And then every event that I saw afterward of you, I was like, where, like, I need to hear everything she has to say. And so uh, my last question is like, what advice would you offer for young black women who are struggling with emotional martyrdom? What are some kind of steps for them to consider when they're thinking about how to release having to 
be everything for everyone all the time. Yeah, yeah. I think one practical thing that I do, if this is something that is accessible to folks or a pathway that feels good for them is I journal every day or try to journal as much as I can, um, at least three pages. Um, and the first two pages are normally garbage. They're about <laughs> me complaining about the dog. I'm doing to-do lists. I'm like not really writing anything fruitful. But when I get to the third page, something happens. Things click. I have fresh ideas. I start feeling like really good about myself. And I'm like, you got this, right? So the first page is just like, why did you wait until the last minute to write this thing? Da, 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 and, you're just, and then the end of it, I'm like, you've worked so hard and everything is within you. And like, here are all these 10 new ideas of stuff that you can do. And so... I think whatever, if it's writing, um, if it's going for a run or whatever, whatever a good meditative practice is where you can check in with your goals, your motivations, your skill set, and what you're willing to risk to create the life that you want. Mm. And I think if you can stay focused and have a practice on that, then your everyday decision making has a different center it gets grounded in something different. And so when you're faced with, you know, should I take this job that's in a really toxic space, but I can make, you know, $200,000 a year or whatever, versus do I want to try this other thing? I can't tell you how to make those decisions, but you have to find ways to tap into your own decision-making process and your own decision-making values. Mm -hmm. And I think once you have agency and control over how you make decisions, then that's where kind of not even surviving in these spaces, but thriving in them and creating a life within work and outside of work that can feel really fulfilling to you. Mm -hmm. And so this doesn't mean that like you plant trees and build houses and you get to do social justice work, whatever your decision-making can take you to the most toxic work environments known in the face of the planet, but you are, can thrive in those spaces because you know why you're there. You know what you're trying to get out of it. You know what you're trying to do. And so I'm not saying that people don't have to be in these spaces, yeah. but you have to decide for yourself what you want. Period. Period. That... <laughs> Affirmed. I needed to hear that. Thank you. Um, I know what I'm doing in my spaces. I know, like, I know what I need before I'm gonna get the fuck out. So that's good. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for doing this uh, interview and taking you. your time. You're just wonderful and beautiful. And I just I appreciate it. I also want you don't have to use this for recording, but I want it recorded that <laughs> are you gonna tell people uh, more information about you so that, you know, you're not so single anymore. Like I'm trying to figure oh. out how we make the hookup happen. <laughs> no, what I want to make sure is recorded is that I agree to do this without any information on what it is solely based on the fact that I think you're amazing. And the exchange for this is that we would do a Peloton ride together. Yeah, yeah. I want people to know that the ride has not happened. <laughs> And so there is a debt that is owed. Um, I think your dog started barking because. Oh, don't use him. Don't 
freak him into this? He was trying to shut that down. <laughs> Listen, I will ride with you on Peloton. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do it. I'm okay, on there almost okay. every day. Oh, you um, and so, I mean, no, it's just that I have to deal with a lot of whiteness. And that's the way that I release those feelings is I just ride it out. But I can't wait to do any single ride with you. That would be fun. I've never used the video calling Me feature. Neither. So let's just do it. And you'll see just like how much sweat pours out of this body. Perfect. Okay, perfect. This podcast is a labor of love. And too often, labor by Black women happens without compensation. If anything in this episode resonated, and if you're taking anything along with you today, please consider donating to our Patreon or sending funds via Venmo. All information is available on that'snolongermyministry.com. Also, wherever you're listening to this episode, please consider subscribing and tuning in to next week's community release. Bye, fam.